0: to be joined today by member of Congress, businessman, and Democratic candidate for President of the United States, Dean Phillips. Great to see you again, sir.
1: Great to be with you guys.
0: Um, Last time you were on with me on Breaking Points, we had a nice little feisty-spirited exchange, and I I appreciate you. uh, Yeah, I appreciate your willingness to engage. So thank you so much for uh, taking some time with us today. And I just wanted to start by asking you, you know, how do you feel like the campaign's going? Where do you think that things are right now? And what are your hopes for this month when, you know, the caucuses, the voting actually starts?
1: So things are going well. You wouldn't know it from watching MSNBC or listening to the the Washington political industrial complex, but things are going really well. There's a big disconnect, I think, between Washington and the rest of the country right now as it relates to war and peace, as it relates to how expensive life is in America. And I'm discovering a lot over the last two months. There's no question, though, that Uh, New Hampshire is going to be a real linchpin, uh, a way for me to introduce myself to the country, uh, the first uh, actual voter competition um, in this primary season. And I think it'll be very telling. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed, working my tail off and expecting to surprise in New Hampshire that day. Uh, But most of all, it's going great. People are amazing. Our country is less divided than angertainment would have us believe. And we're facing a lot of crises uh, around the world and at home, and uh, it has sure been illuminating. And I wish my colleagues, frankly, could join me on the campaign trail because it w- they would sure learn a lot about what's really going on in our country.
0: So I know you've got a debate with uh, Marion Williamson, also, mm-hmm. of course, running for president in the uh, Democratic contest on January 8th, I believe, in New Hampshire. You know, you launched your campaign. You've been a very solid supporter of the Biden agenda. I think your voting record in Congress has pretty much been lockstep. You launched the campaign saying basically like, look, voters are telling us these are my words, not yours. You can clarify them yeah. if you want. But um, this guy is too old. He's a little past his prime. He's not doing too well in the polls. We need to go in a different direction. And that's why you jumped into the campaign. As you have been campaigning and watching uh, Biden and the way that he has been setting himself up for a second term, do you have more of a policy critique of him at this point or is it still just, look, this guy's not really set up to win in 2024?
1: Well, let's start with what you just referenced, uh, Crystal, which is that he he won't win. I mean, all the evidence. If someone could show me one set of data that indicates that President Biden is well-positioned to beat Donald Trump, Uh, I'd love to see it because he's losing in every battleground state. He's losing in national polls. His approval numbers are historically low. And yes, I do believe the sad truth is that the country has made the decision uh, that at his stage of life, uh, that he's too old. And as you said, those are other people's words, not mine. But I understand that rationale. And that is indeed why I thought it was important uh, that voters have choices, uh, because I will not let Donald Trump return to the White House. That is my entire mission and prerogative. Uh, as for policy, yeah, we have a lot of differences, Crystal. I do admire the president. I voted for his agenda. But that agenda was an investment in infrastructure in America, the CHIPS Act, Return Manufacturing, the Infrastructure Bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. Those are good investments. But what the real issue is right now, in my estimation, based on just listening to people, uh, is the unaffordability of America. And that means health care. We need Medicare for all housing we need housing for everybody half a million people are sleeping in the streets every night in America 26 million without health care uh, coverage and then education for all you know we have 1.7 trillion dollars in student debt uh, that is suffocating people and the only way to rectify the really gross disparities in wealth and income in the United States is to raise the foundation for everybody and i do believe that is how the bridge can be built between conservatism and progressive uh, perspectives To raise the foundation and ensure that we do have equal opportunity in America. We're not going to have equal outcomes, but we have to strive for opportunity. That is a big difference. I also favor cannabis legalization. The uh, president has been very slow on that. Uh, I do favor a significant investment in securing our southern border, Uh, make it a more humane uh, process by which asylum seekers can apply in their country of origin. That is a difference. And I think the other growing difference is my commitment to peace. Uh, As someone who lost his father in the Vietnam War, a meaningless and foolish war on the part of the United States, I'm very sensitive uh, to how much we spend overseas, when we send young men and women overseas uh, to uh, represent us and oftentimes fight. Uh, I think we are not making the requisite investments in peace in the world uh, to ensure the world stays safe. And those are points of difference. Uh, He's been around 50 years, and it's time for change, I say, from the West Bank to the West Wing.
0: We definitely want to talk more about that um, commitment to peace in a bit. But, you know, some of the pieces you lay out there, it almost sounds like the Bernie Sanders agenda, Uh, Medicare for All you just recently signed on to. You're talking about education for all. Have you shifted ideologically because previously you really sort of framed yourself and I think your you know voting record was consistent with the more moderate or centrist positioning within the Democratic Party. And now with your embrace of Medicare for all in particular, that's been sort of a, a litmus test to push, position yourself on the more left wing part of the party. So have you shifted ideologically? And if so, why?
1: So I'll tell you, Crystal, you know, I've always been a pragmatic progressive. And what I really love about my position is that I am a progressive, and I'm also the second most bipartisan member of the entire Congress. That's all senators, all House members, and all 50 governors, 585 people. And I think it's time for people like me, positioned as centrists or moderates, whatever you wanna call us, uh, to try to repackage some of the progressive policies to make them make sense to conservatives. And I've discovered how to do that as a representative from a very purple district, uh, and I believe every one of my positions, yes, I've had migration because the more I spend time with Americans who are really struggling, it has opened my eyes. It has opened my heart. And I've seen suffering and disparities that, frankly, I wasn't nearly deeply enough aware of beforehand. So I've always hmm. favored a public option. And I do believe the only way to salvage uh, our health care system, which is not health care, it's sick care, is a Medicare for all system that affords health coverage for everybody does not engage the public sector in the provision of care, but in the coverage of care. I've always believed in education should be affordable for everybody. Uh, and housing, You know, we need to build 7 million housing units. Uh, it is not a progressive or a conservative policy. It's a simple fact that we need to produce housing. But is there? have I migrated a little bit uh, on some areas since I've campaigned? Absolutely, which is what is supposed to happen. Uh, I'm also to the right on some other issues. I probably border security uh, is a good example of that. Uh, because I'm common sense. But I'll tell you, I think there's an opportunity for progressives, if we're willing to work together with conservatives, to repackage, reimagine some of the policy pros- um, pro- proposals that have been issued for many years by progressives, but do so in a way that is invitational instead of confrontational. Because I think there's a grand opportunity. That's indeed the whole basis of my campaign. Uh by the way, I've been pretty progressive too, Crystal, in a lot of bills. I voted for the reparations. Pilot programming. I'm looking at a UBI pilot program bill right now because I think that could be one of the solutions. Uh, and this has really liberated me uh, to pursue the policies that I think are in the best interest of the entire country, not just my own district.
2: So, would you say you're more of an FDR Democrat or a Clinton Democrat?
1: <laughs> I'm probably somewhere. I'm probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, you know, I, I did like Bill Clinton's fiscal responsibility, the last president that really managed the United States federal government in a I think a responsible manner, we had a budget surplus. There has not been a Democrat or Republican since his administration that did so. And I like to reimagine some of our systems and programs like FDR did at a time where I really do believe we're at a crossroads in America. Uh, Democracies will fail if they're taken over by tyrants like Donald Trump, or if wealth and income disparities uh, grow so wide uh, that people will no longer tolerate them. And that should be unifying our country right now And I think FDR recognize that if we didn't raise uh, the water for everybody, if we didn't raise the foundation for all Americans, that we would no longer be America. I think we're facing the same thing right now. And every 50 years or so, I think it is important that our country uh, assess where we're at uh, and work together to reimagine the future because we're being passed up by too many countries around the world.
2: So in North Carolina, Florida, Tennessee and Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. the Democratic Party has canceled the Democratic primary. What's your reaction to what those Democratic parties did?
1: Well, I'll tell you, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I know that when I say some of these things, people probably shake their heads. But I got to tell you guys, and you probably know better than I, uh, I'm appalled. I'm really appalled at how the Democratic Party operates behind the scenes. Now, we should be a party that makes voting easier, that uh, that promotes competitions with candidates, and that encourages debate. And sadly, I'm seeing every one of those legs of the Democratic stool with a small d um, being uh, egregiously uh, uh, not addressed. And I'm, I'm really concerned uh, what North Carolina did, the Democratic uh, Party uh, executive committee, essentially decided that there didn't need to be a competition, that Joe Biden would just simply take all the delegates. Uh, There would be no primary. Uh, State of Florida Democratic Party Executive Committee, hundred and some people decided for 4 million people that only Joe Biden should be on the ballot. And what's most bizarre about North Carolina is that in 2020, there were 15 Democrats on the ballot because in North Carolina, the law is very clear. Any candidate uh, who is recognized in the national news as a candidate for president uh, should be on the ballot. That's why Marianne Williamson was on the ballot in 2020. And somehow, someway this year, neither I nor Marianne are on the ballot, only Joe Biden. Hmm. So I don't know how the Democratic Party can argue uh, that it is promoting democracy when it will not uh, allow a single debate, when it is literally suppressing voters and literally suppressing candidates. And I just believe in transparency, competition uh, and integrity. And I'm seeing none of those from the Democratic Party right now. And I'm just calling it out like I see it.
2: So are you suing in one of those states or all of those states? And if so, do you fancy your chances to get back on either one of those ballots or all of those ballots?
1: Yeah. So a a federal judge, my understanding is a federal judge in Florida has filed a lawsuit against the Democratic Party of Florida. I know we've um, we're pursuing challenges in North Carolina. Uh, It's my understanding the Democratic Party wants this. They want to uh, literally disqualify Marianne and me from being on the ballot, forcing us to bleed us dry financially. Because every time you got to sue a state party, it's about hundreds of thousands of dollars. And of course, they've got endless resources. Uh, campaigns do not. And I think it's a pretty pathetic and weak and anti democratic strategy. So I'm letting people know as much as I can. Uh, we will pursue claims when we can. But I have to tell you, just getting on the ballot has already cost my campaign $2 million. And wow. in a democracy like the U.S., you know, it shouldn't be that difficult. But both parties, sadly, are not working for voters. They're really working against us. And I'm I'm disappointed because I enabled this system for too long. I supported it. I was part of it. And now I'm appalled by it. And I'm going to tell the truth. And I know that's making a lot of enemies of uh, of me in Washington.
0: Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, Axios put out what I frankly thought was kind of a smear and a hatchet job, but I wanted to get your reaction to it. The headline was, Dean Phillips standing on Capitol Hill has all but collapsed. Um, They gathered these Mm -hmm. quotes from your colleagues, just to read a couple of them. You've got uh, Representative Robert Garcia saying your campaign is a total joke and very disrespectful of the president and the party. Um, You had another individual saying that uh, you seem to be taking a page out of the Trump playbook. Quote, it makes me wonder if he's a real Democrat. Uh, you had majority Leader Denny Hoyer, saying Dean Phillips is not going to win any primary. I think he's not helpful to the country. I mean, is this consistent with the attitude that you have um, experienced in Washington among your colleagues in the House?
1: Well, first of all, these are all the same people who elected me just a year ago to House Democratic leadership. As you guys know, I'm a Democrat, uh, voted with the Biden administration I think 100% of the time. I'm proud of my uh, long standing uh, in the Democratic Party, uh, the people you just referenced, um, it's quite interesting because behind the scenes, I'm getting a lot of love from a lot of my colleagues in Congress uh, because they recognize how tragic the status quo is, you know, respectful. You know, what's disrespectful is offering a single candidate who is almost certain to lose to the most, most dangerous man in American history. Uh That's disrespectful. Um, not winning a state primary. You know what? We'll see. And by the way, that's not what this is about. What this is about is ensuring that we have choices for voters. And I'm saddened to say that there's a culture of silence. uh, There is follow the leader and there is not a single shred uh, of courage or independent mindedness in the U.S. Congress, as we see now on both sides of the aisle, because the system is designed to punish anybody who would have the audacity to practice democracy. So look, I I don't, to be honest with you guys, I don't really care what people in Washington think. What I do care uh, is what voters around the country think. And the fact of the matter is voters are angry. And the reason we have Trumpism is because of comments like the ones from those three people right there. They don't get it. They don't understand how absolutely furious Americans are. Many people who used to vote for Democrats, who now are Trumpers, because they're so disgusted with this notion that in America we would have coronations and not have choices. So I think it's as simple as that and by the way I knew what I was getting into I knew I'd torpedo my career <clears throat> I knew that I would lose friends but I'll tell you it's in this pursuit of principle and I just wish more people would be willing to do the same thing so in
2: Maine and Colorado, Trump has been kicked off the ballot for mm-hmm. violating section three of the Fourteenth Amendment. In yep. one case, you had the Secretary of State say, I'm making this decision. In the other case, you had the state Supreme Court make the decision. Mm-hmm. I know that you disagree with those decisions. Why do you disagree with those decisions?
1: Well, let, let me say let me first say that I was trapped in the House chamber on January 6th. You know, there is not a more despicable, dangerous despot in American history. Uh, Than Donald Trump. Uh, He inspired an insurrection, I believe. He did nothing to end it when it started. Uh, I was trapped with a lot of my colleagues who were texting and calling home saying goodbye because we thought that would be the end of our lives in 15 minutes. So don't get me wrong about what I think about Donald Trump. What I'm concerned about is the fact that the United States Congress was not able to prosecute him. We charged him with a crime. Uh, He was basically found not guilty. So I do believe it's awfully dangerous in the United States of America when a man who is leading in the presidential race is disqualified from ballots, um, because I think that's going to lead to both civil unrest and even potentially civil war. I do believe that Donald Trump should be defeated, but not by the legal system, by voters, period. Uh, So it's pragmatic. It's about protecting our country. It is not about what I think of Donald Trump. Uh, And I do believe the Supreme Court will have to opine and I will respect their decision either way. I just think it's dangerous. It's not that I think it's right or wrong. I think it's dangerous. And I think we're going to see that play out, sadly, uh, if this continues, because we can't let voters uh, be suppressed. We have to let voters make the decisions when it comes to candidates, especially ones favored by over half of the country. I cannot believe we're even in this position. The man has been charged with so many crimes. His businesses have declared bankruptcy. His family foundation was shut down. You know, he's a criminal. He lacks character. He's a narcissist. He's a pig. And people are still favoring this man for the president of the United States over Joe Biden. That's what this entire campaign is about. I am screaming from the rooftops to Democrats that we better get our damn act together fast because we're walking into a disaster. Unlike 2016, we know what is forthcoming. That is my message to people. And the way to disqualify him is to ensure that we have a candidate who will beat him not use the legal system to do so, because we're not gonna win that way. That's my contention.
2: So that argument sounds to me like it's just, you kind of disagree with section three of the 14th amendment. And my issue with that is, if you do a plain face reading of the Mm -hmm. amendment, It actually fits remarkably well. So it says in very plain language uh, that you can't hold office in the United States if you have engaged in insurrection, quote, Mm -hmm. if you have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. So I guess my Mm -hmm. question is, how does this not apply? And even if you take a conservative legal philosophy of textualism or originalism, it almost Mm -hmm. applies even better in that scenario. So why shouldn't he be kicked off?
1: But I, I hear you. and and what I'm trying to say is that we had the chance to remove him forever uh, by pursuing the impeachment charge against him, of course, for which I voted, for which ten Republicans voted, nine of whom are now gone from Congress because they, you know what happened to them. I'm not disagreeing with the text. I'm not disagreeing with the the amendment itself. I think it is terribly important actually. What I'm all I'm trying to say is that the United States Congress found him not guilty sickeningly, because I can't believe we did, but that's what happened. As a result, if he is disqualified from only a handful of states, by the way, not all of them, because that's clearly not gonna happen, I'm just saying it's dangerous. I'm not saying I don't agree with the legality and the reading, because that can be uh, interpreted different ways. Did he participate in the insurrection? Did he give aid particularly? Look, at on the surface, it sure seems to some degree that he did, but I understand why, without a specific um, uh, conviction, that it makes it a little bit harder. And the fact of the matter is, again, you guys, I'm I'm afraid that if this is the way it's pursued, we are going to have uh, civil unrest in this country that we may not have seen uh, since the Civil War. And I'm concerned about it. So d- don't, don't get me wrong about my distaste for the man uh, and the reading of the text. Uh, my concern is that we're walking into a really dangerous time. And I'm just disgusted that members of the United States Congress did not have the courage of conviction that he was wrong and should have been prosecuted and never allowed to stand for election again in the United States. That was our chance. I'm afraid uh, we didn't seize it uh, and I'm repulsed by it, but that's where we're at.
0: So there's a few things I would say in response to that. First of all, on um, the fact that he was found effectively not guilty. Um, In the Congress, when this was applied predominantly Mm -hmm. during, you know, post-Civil War in the past, it didn't require uh, congressional impeachment hearings for someone to be, you know, barred from office based on this provision. That's number one. Number two, it seems like the argument you're making isn't really about the legality or the technical reading of it or how it was applied in the past. It's over fear of an outcome of the future. And it doesn't seem to me like the law or provisions of the Constitution should be, you know, subject to guesses about what might happen if the law is, in fact, faithfully applied. And the last thing I would say is I think you're 100 percent right that we are entering dangerous territory. And I think that is regardless Mm. of what happens with this uh, upcoming likely Supreme Court decision. I mean, Let's say that Donald Trump loses again at the ballot box. We ended up with January 6th in that outcome. So mm-hmm. to me, to try to control the future, you're basically allowing this group of uh, zealots and the president himself to hold the country hostage to keep him from being held accountable.
1: I understand. And I, and I respect that. And that's why I think it's really important that this Supreme Court opine fast. Because, of course, our Constitution delegates authority for elections to the states, and that's why it's going to be a a one-at-a-time affair. The fact of the matter, Crystal, is that over half of the country does not believe that Donald Trump is guilty of those crimes. And that's all I'm talking about is who should be the judge and jury of this particular man.
0: But actually, Uh, Congressman, when when you asked the American public, I mean, there was a poll done of do you support kicking him off the ballot. And that was actually pretty overwhelming. People were like, yes, yes. The it was almost 60 percent. Yeah, it was almost 60 percent like, said get yes, him man. out of there. So, you know, the American people actually do think he was guilty of these crimes and do think that he should be kicked off the ballot.
1: I've We've read different data and I respect I'm, I'm sure I, I didn't see the, the poll that you just referenced. And I, I respect that. Guys, I'm, I, I hear you. I, as someone who has been subject to the man, both as a member of Congress, as someone trapped in the House chamber, there's no one more repulsive in the United States of America than he And I'm trying to save our country. And I do understand why one can argue on the 14th Amendment on either side of this issue. Uh, I know the text on one hand uh, seems very clear. On the other hand, uh, I think it can be a matter of interpretation. I'm not shaming the states that have done that. I'm simply saying that I believe that voters should be the judge and jury. And as Democrats, I believe it's going to really be difficult for the Democratic Party to emerge from this as a strong and principled uh, movement and party. Uh, if it appears to the lot of the country that Democrats pursue strategies like they're pursuing against me and Marianne Williamson and against Donald Trump. And by the way, it it, it might be perfectly legal for the Democratic Party to do what they did in Florida and North Carolina. It might be perfectly legal. It doesn't make it any more atrocious and ridiculous uh, and anti-democratic. And I think sometimes you know we have to interpret these things from a perspective of what's in the best interest of the country, and I just feel right now that what's in the best interest of the country is to let the country defeat Donald Trump, because I don't know if we recover from it, uh, if we do it another way, period. And if I, if every state did this, you guys, I, that might be a little different, but I think mm-hmm. this is causing real Grave concerns when only a couple states pursue this. It should be either all or none. I do believe that's why the Supreme Court is going to play a big role in this. And I'm not, I'm really, I, this is more of a discussion and debate, not a hardened position uh, from me. I just want you to know that. I'm just I, really, I concerned. And I'm really know,
0: concerned. I hear you. I'm really concerned. In fairness, like I do think some of the the legal issues here are are tricky because we're in uncharted territory and because this has not been really applied since Reconstruction. I just the last thing I'll say on it is um, I don't think that it is fair to you (laughs) or to Marianne. To put yourself in the same bucket as Donald Trump you on didn't, this. You didn't it do just, an insurrection. Yeah, you didn't do an, did insurrection. an insurrection. There's no look, provision of the Constitution right. that we're like, that applies well, to what Dean Phillips. To but when I mean, you guys, read this, you're like, if it, it applies to, to anyone, it's Donald Trump. And, and well, by yeah. the way...
2: This was invoked recently, uh, Congressman. This was invoked in New Mexico. There was a state official who was holding office. And just the fact that he was at January 6th, there wasn't even any accusation of him Mm -hmm. committing violence or breaking windows or attacking officers. Just the fact that he was at January 6th, he lost his position and it was upheld by the court. So if it applies to that that, guy, I I don't see why it doesn't
1: apply to Trump. Well, no, but but that's what I'm getting at, you guys. Look at, uh, you know, Every word matters. I look, you know what I feel about this man. I, I couldn't be more repulsed by him. The fact is, he wasn't actually at January 6th. You know, he was at the rally. You could argue we could go into this. Well, for he was hours. the ringleader. He, he did the they ringleader. did the fake electors plot. I'm just, all I'm saying, guys, is there there's there are fine lines between these um these truths. We know he is wrong, we know he's dangerous. I'm not discounting that. I'm just saying that there is a matter of interpretation. And I am really, really concerned. And I'm glad you referenced what happened to Marianne and, and me. At the hands of our own party did the same thing. I mean, I tweeted yesterday about how the Democratic Party is literally using the same tactic as Iran and Russia uses to arbitrarily disqualify candidates. And people were aghast that I would say such a thing. Well, I don't quite understand what is the difference when you are arbitrarily removed, when you are a candidate for president, when you were on the ballot, in this case of Marianne Williamson last time, but not right. this time. What's and And you will not allow the president to debate. You will not. He does not campaign. He does not answer questions from the press. He does not appear in front of voters. I mean, you guys, this is getting to be a little bit weird. I'm just being
0: forthright. Yeah. And all the attention is on. Do you think they want to win? Because, I mean, as you said, like lowest approval rating of an incumbent president seeking a real. So what like what leads to this mentality? How do they end up in this mindset where on the one, I mean, you just can't believe their rhetoric about believing Donald Trump is a true threat to democracy when they're bound and determined to guarantee that you they have such a weak candidate to go up against him.
1: I'm trying to inspire Democrats to want to win. This is about freaking winning, winning. And look at the numbers. Politicians lie all the time. The numbers don't. You can tell me anything that, oh, you know, Biden does have it. Yes, he could win. Is there a small chance he could win? Yes, He himself said a couple of weeks ago that there are 50 Democrats that could beat Donald Trump. So my contention is really simple. If Democrats want to win, why would we not encourage a process to identify that person? I still want other candidates to enter the stage. I still believe it's in the best interest of the country for President Biden to pass the torch and exit the race now because I think it would be healthy to have other candidates start debating, deliberating, and making their case. And then next summer, Once the head to head polls are out and the country understands its choices, to determine who is best positioned to beat Donald Trump. Because right now, the hypocrisy is ridiculous. And yes, why, Crystal? I think it's really simple. People in positions of prestige and power wish to protect themselves, period. And if people would open their eyes and stop walking into this delusion and this nightmare that we're about to walk into, we could still win this handily. And by the way, If it's Nikki Haley against Joe Biden, you've seen the numbers. Biden probably loses by (laughs) 15 points. So I don't (laughs) understand what is going on here. I do understand Democrats are being deluded. And it is a really steep slope to explain this to Democratic voters who have literally been hoodwinked by our own party. And I'm really saddened to report that. But it's true. It's true.
2: So let's move to Israel here. How would you handle Israel
1: different from Biden? Well, first, let, let me go backwards first, because I think it's important. You know, this this cycle of violence has been occurring literally since I was born. And when I was born, Joe Biden was essentially a U.S. Senator. I was three years old when he went to Washington. You know, the cycle of violence has been ongoing. The United States, we came close under the Clinton administration, of course, and, and Jimmy Carter, of course, made peace um, you know, with, with Jordan and also Egypt. But since then, for the most part, the United States has been very unsuccessful Uh, in addressing one of the most significant challenges facing the world. Uh, And I'm sick of the cycle. Uh, I am sick of the terrorism. I'm sick of the settlement policy. I believe that the uh, Palestinian Authority is corrupt. Hamas is a terrorist organization. And Benjamin Netanyahu, all three of those leaders uh, or organizations have got to go. This is the truth. And I think it's time for the entire world, friends and foes, to work together to impose peace And what I mean by imposition of peace, it is time for a Palestinian state. I'm a Jewish man, I have great affection for Israel and its right to exist in the Jewish people, you can imagine. But I also recognize if it is indeed um, the prerogative of those who care about Israel to protect it, that we need to all work towards a Palestinian state, the self-determination, safety, security, and opportunity. We need a 21st century Marshall Plan In which nations of the world come together establish a state ensure security for both nations and make requisite investments in civil society uh, and economy if we don't try this we are not just going to fail in the region it is a risk to the entire globe and we're getting to a point where people will be able to carry nuclear weapons in backpacks into any city in this world and if we don't act now and invest in peace uh, and reduce despair and oppression all around the world We are going to be in big trouble and I do not see this president and I certainly don't see President Trump willing uh, to present the courage of conviction to actually pursue this. And I do wish to create a Palestinian state. I think that is the only way forward. I care just as much about Palestinian kids and families and people as I do about Israelis and Jewish people because we're all humans and I'm sick and nauseated and appalled by what I see happening time and time again.
2: So Biden subverted Congress to send more weapons to Israel recently. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I have to ask you, Bernie Sanders came out the other day and basically said, no more funding. This is totally gross and disproportionate a response and massive numbers of innocent civilians are being killed daily. And Bernie early on was one of the guys saying... I don't want a full ceasefire, but now even Mm -hmm. he's come to the position. We got to stop arming this. We see what's happening. We Mm -hmm. have eyes. We can see the video. We can see the pictures. So are you in that place now as well, where uh, obviously I'm sure you agree that Biden shouldn't have subverted Congress, but are you also at the point where it's like, Hey man, not a penny more because we see what's going on.
1: Yeah. so, So as, as for congressional consent, yes, I do believe Congress should consent to such arms transfers. I mean, that's why we have a United States Congress. And the fact of the matter is, Congress has to reassert itself. That's a whole other conversation I'd love to have with you at some point, having been on the inside. It's appalling how much happens without consent uh, or only the consent of a handful, uh, which defeats democracy. As for the circumstance itself, look, two things can be true at once. Hamas has to be eliminated. Uh, They do not, they're the enemy of not just Israelis, they're the enemy of Palestinians, and it is the truth. Palestinians want the same thing that every one of us want in the world, which is security and possibility, now, food on the table, you know, economic potential, it's not that difficult. But Hamas is not looking for peace. And Benjamin Netanyahu is not looking for peace. So two things can be true at once. Hamas has to be eliminated. On the other hand, Netanyahu and his government right now appear to have no incentive to end this war. And that's a reality. He's facing corruption charges. His only his standing only increases when there's times of battle. Uh, And these are truths. So I do think the United States should ensure two things, that Hamas is defeated, that Israel is protected, and that we do not support the indiscriminate killing of human beings, period. So, yes, Congress should be playing a role. And that's why we have Congress. And you can see what's going on. But
2: how do you eliminate Hamas? Because this is a talking point I hear all Mm -hmm. the time. And it seems to be like a justification for the perpetual bombardment. Right now, we see the numbers, according to EuroMed monitor, the Human Rights Group. It's 92% innocent civilians who have mm-hmm. been killed. How do you, quote unquote, get rid of Hamas? It seems like an impossible standard in the same way that George W. Bush waged a war on terror. It's like you're never just going to defeat terror. And there's always going to be Palestinian hardliners and militants. So sure. how do you defeat Hamas? It seems like an impossible
1: standard. Well, you get, you know, you you have to target, uh, you know, we, by the way, the United States is still we have an AUMF authorization for the use of military force against al Qaeda and ISIS right now. I think Hamas should be added to that because uh, they are a terrorist organization currently holding eight Americans hostage. Let's start with that for one moment. Eight Americans have been held hostage for almost three months in Gaza. It should be first and foremost priority of the United States president and our entire country to ensure their release or extract them if necessary. So I wanna remind you that Hamas is holding Americans hostage and we should not accept that. Yes, is it hard to eliminate them? Absolutely. But if the world unites behind the elimination of terror, there are a lot of ways to do so. And I'm afraid that we are, we can be very effective when we work together. We're not very effective when we do it alone. It has to be an all hands on deck approach. But at the end of the day, the real way to eliminate Hamas is to ensure that Palestinians have a future And in the absence of a principled government representing Palestinians who are seeking peace, who are seeking prosperity, and who are seeking protection, we are going to see militant organizations rise in in every country in the world if people are oppressed. So this is a chicken and the egg. I understand that. But I believe that the investment in people and infrastructure, when people have something to protect, they act in defensive manners. When people have nothing to lose, when hopelessness reigns, it doesn't matter if it's Gary, Indiana or Gaza, the Gaza Strip. It is the same human beings and the same human condition. People will not live under oppression. And I understand that. And I'm a Jewish man who loves Israel. These are truths. Uh, and I'm trying to tell everybody who's watching and listening right now that we've got to rise above the conflict and invest in humanity. And the way to eliminate Hamas is to show there's a better way. But right now, most Palestinians don't see a better way because It is absent. That's why I think it's time to impose the possibility of peace. But that is going to take an all hands on deck international effort, including China, by the way, which I think could be an extraordinary opportunity to reset our relationship with China, to start investing as partners in peace all around the world End the war in Ukraine, um, have a Palestinian state created with security in the Middle East. The Gulf states and MDS have to be participants. I believe it's time to change our entire approach because it is not working, the status quo. It's simply not working. And I just wanna say one more thing about Israel because I think it's important that people know this. You know, when the first boats of refugees left uh, Europe at the beginning of the Holocaust and came to the United States, they were turned away right? They were turned away. There are now 200 or so Christian majority nations in the world, about 140 Muslim majority nations in the world. And there's just one Jewish majority nation in the world established after 6 million Jewish people were killed just for their religion. And Israel needs to exist. Uh, And progressives in America supported Israel for generations under that belief that there needs to be a singular, at least, Jewish majority state as a place of refuge for the Jewish diaspora, because there will be another Holocaust, sadly, or another pogrom. We're seeing evidence of that uh, anti-Semitism rise again. So I would just ask people to have hearts open for Palestinians who have suffered, and also the Jewish people who have suffered through thousands of years of horrifying history. Uh, There's a lot of oppression in the world. We have a lot of it here in America. But I just wanna be mindful of the realities and let's work on the solutions rather than the condemnations. And that means it's time for new leadership, like I said, in the West Bank, in Gaza, and in the West Wing, period.
0: Congressman, do you believe that Israel has committed war crimes? And would you be committed to holding the perpetrators of those war crimes accountable? Were you president?
1: I believe I believe any perpetrator of a war crime, if demonstrated uh, in, the, in a court, uh, international court, of course. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter one's religion, doesn't matter one's nationality, doesn't matter one's political party uh, or one's perspective. I mean, and this goes back to the Fourteenth Amendment. I understand, you know, the law is the law. Uh I also understand there are dangers uh if the law is not applied uh consistently uh and uh literally religiously. And as it relates to war crimes, I'm afraid our world tolerates way too much destruction uh, and invests way too little in peace. But the answer is of course, of course,
0: I'd be a hypocrite. Do you see evidence of that with regards to Israel, though? I mean, we have uh, Washington Post confirming white phosphorus dropped on civilians in a manner inconsistent with international law in Lebanon. We have the complete siege, which was announced at Mm -hmm. the uh, beginning of Israel's assault on Gaza. We have what the president himself has described as indiscriminate bombing, a level Mm -hmm. of civilian death, you know, somewhere around 80 percent of those killed. Uh, We have hospitals, schools, civilian infrastructure, agricultural lands all targeted. Mm-hmm. Do those acts, in your opinion, constitute war crimes?
1: Well, war, first of all, war crimes are war crimes. Of course, any targeting of innocents or any failure to protect them, of course. But, but, Crystal, we, you know, October seventh, Hamas has to be held. Let's start with Hamas for a second. October seventh. By the way, we can. There can be a long discussion about the roots of this conflict, and I do believe the Netanyahu settlement policy. Of course, it's horrifyingly provocative. I've told that to his face, by the way. But as a result, as it relates to what you just asked me, Mm -hmm. Hamas needs to be held accountable. Talk about indiscriminate. No, but let me me just finish. You asked the question. Let's start with Hamas. What they did to women, the rapes, the videos, I, I don't know if you've seen, that are most horrifying videos of the direct targeting of innocent civilians I've ever seen. It's repulsive, okay? That is a horrifying crime against humanity. If Netanyahu is demonstrated in a court of law that Netanyahu knowingly targeted civilians or took no steps to prevent civilian loss of life? Of course. but here's
0: You know, I don't want to nitpick, but here's my issue with what you just said. The language you use with regard to Hamas is appropriately unequivocal. You talk about the, you know, the crimes that they committed, the horrors that Mm -hmm. they committed. You don't say if they did, if it's proven in a court of law. But suddenly when it comes to Israel, it's, Well, sure, if they did it, but you're not committing to what we see in the horrors post-October 7th. I mean, the videos are available for everyone to see. We know the civilian death toll. 12,000 children as of right now. I am a 100 million percent on board with Hamas being held accountable for the atrocities that they committed. But there seems to be such a reluctance to have the same moral clarity when Mm -hmm. it comes to the Israeli government, which at this point has a higher... Civilian death rate than even the terrorist of Hamas. Mm-hmm.
1: Look, I hear you. And I'm not, this is, I think it's exactly, I think we're saying the same thing. When you target innocent human beings, you should be held accountable. I think we have different perspectives. Perhaps because look at I'm a I'm a Jewish person um, whose people have been subject to some of the most horrific abuses of humanity in history. And I'm not asking you to understand how I feel cause you can't walk in my shoes. I've not walked in yours and I certainly haven't walked in the shoes of Palestinians but I can speak for the Jewish people who are simply trying to defend themselves. Uh, and I understand, you know, the difference is I've seen the video of individual Hamas fighters, you know, brutally, brutally targeting and attacking individuals in Israel. Um, what I'm getting at here is we don't have the, I mean, yes, have I seen the evidence of killing? Yes, it's atrocious, I'm appalled. I'm a proud Jewish man who supports Israel, who's appalled by the loss of lives of Palestinians. I want to end it today. I want to end this nonsense and establish a state. But like I said, I don't know what went on in the rooms. I don't know specifically who targeted and who made the approvals to drop bombs in certain places. I'm not saying that I disagree. If the fact is the evidence indicates the same, I just haven't seen video of it like I have with I the mean, the, the video is video you available. haven't seen video of it. It's all no, over no, the place. I've seen the video of the loss of life. I'm talking about the perpetrators. You guys, this is different. This perpetrators. OK, I'm I'm not make, I'm making it really clear. I'm making it really clear. I'm no fan of Benjamin Netanyahu. I think he's a big part of this problem. I'm simply pointing out also because look at this is part of the problem. You know, I, I don't understand why. There isn't also a conversation about the security of Israel, period, because it's been attacked for its entire I think that's that's the only
2: conversation people Mm -hmm. are having, certainly in U.S. media and among U.S. politicians. Mm
0: -hmm. But to to your point, though, Congressman, the ultimate enemy of Hamas and the ultimate enemy of extremists in Israel is Mm -hmm. peace. It's peace. There is no military solution to this conflict. The ultimate guarantee of security for Palestinians and Israelis alike is peace. peace. And so there seems to be, you acknowledge that. But then there's other language about, well, Israel's just trying to defend itself and why isn't there a conversation about Israeli security? Well, actually, that is the conversation that we're trying to have is about both Israeli security and Palestinian security. You know, specifically on, you know, that you you haven't seen the evidence with regard to Israel that you've seen with regard to Hamas. You know, the government, Yoav Gallant, the defense minister, at the beginning of this, he announced mm-hmm. complete siege, blocking food, water, medicine, fuel. And said, quote, we are fighting human animals and they need to be treated as such. You have the UN reporting that half, half of Gazans are starving. Mm -hmm. Ninety percent of the population, entire population, routinely goes entire days without eating. Mm -hmm. Okay, this isn't me. This is the UN. This is what the government announced. is that complete siege and denial of the basic conditions of life? Is that a war crime?
1: I, I'm so just just listening to what you just shared, Crystal. Is it makes my heart break and it's sickening and it's wrong and I don't want to see humans suffering. I'm I'm trying to make this really really clear. I'm sick of it and I do believe people who are responsible for war crimes should be prosecuted. Period.
0: But are they responsible and, and, for war crimes? And the
1: fact of the matter is, you know, and, but I, I, and look, I, all I'm trying to get to with both of you right now is two things can be true at once. You know, Hamas is a horrific terrorist organization that is committed to the destruction of the Jewish people. And I'm not going to continue to tolerate people who will not simply acknowledge that. That is true. And That's I will the easiest acknowledge, acknowledgement in the world, though. I think the I question
2: also, for you is, is Netanyahu I'm, a terrorist? Is Netanyahu and, a terrorist?
1: I have I've sat with Benjamin Netanyahu twice this year. I've made it very clear how I feel. He is responsible for the lack of security. And I believe for a lot of the mess in which this entire region now finds itself in right now. Is he a terrorist? His right-wing government. I'm not going to call him. Guys, you're going to push me in directions. Is he a terrorist? No, I don't think he's a terrorist. I think he is a misguided, ineffective and increasingly a uh, dangerous leader for Israel. Because I think Israel security is at risk because of Ben Benjamin Netanyahu. Not everybody, look at, we guys, we can go into this for a long, long time. And all I'm saying is I think two things are true. I think you're saying only one thing is true. And I'm just being honest. Well, Wait, you're not you listening. Here, listen, listening. ready? I'll say it very um, clearly.
2: Hamas is a terrorist organization. The leaders of Hamas should be brought to the International Criminal Court, found guilty and put in prison forever. I also believe that of Ben Gavir and Smotrich and Netanyahu. Do
1: you? I think those three men you just referenced are a big part of the problem, and I think should also, if there's, yeah, I do believe if there's evidence suggesting the same thing that you just shared about them, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Because what I'm seeing in the destruction of human beings is repulsive, period. I also just want to make it clear, there should be two nations that live side by side with peace and prosperity, and I hope there are Jews living in a Palestinian state, just like Palestinians are living in a Jewish state that both people are treated with respect, and decency and integrity and equity period period and i so hear you i'm saying i want to go back thing. to
0: i want to go back to kyle's original question which is biden has offered israel no red lines unconditional support mm-hmm. bypassed normal procedures both within the state department and circumvented congress to ship weapons as as rapidly as he possibly can um yes occasionally we get some pearl clutching about we're worried about what's going on but the actions the actions have been consistently supportive of whatever Israel wants to do. Mm -hmm. Would you be different from that? What are the decision points? How would you have handled this conflict from the beginning?
1: Mm. I believe Israel's at its best when it eliminates individuals um, in the targeted approaches. By the way, as you both probably know, after the Holocaust, Israel did not rest for literally 50 years pursuing every single Nazi around the world they could identify one at a time and bringing justice to them. I do believe that's the best approach with Hamas. As we've seen already in the last couple of days, there's been some evidence of them doing just that. The indiscriminate loss of human life is appalling. I don't care your religion, your your perspective, your politics, it's appalling and wrong. And I would absolutely have done a lot more to limit that or at least draw red lines. By the way, we've drawn red lines in the past in Syria, of course, when Joe Biden was you know, uh, vice president. Mm-hmm. Walked right over those. We'll let Putin walk right into Crimea, and we're not really good with the red line approach, sadly. But yes, the answer is yes. Yes, we have to. By the way, do that all over the world, and that's how, that's part of my proposition for investing in peace and preventing this nonsense. And I would have been a lot more aggressive with Israel relative to the settlement policy for years. Who in their right mind would not have predicted at some point this would happen? You know. So the answer to your question on that is absolutely.
0: Um, South Africa has initiated proceedings against Israel, accusing them of genocide at the International Court of Justice. Um, First of all, do you find those claims to have merit? And second of all, if you were president and the ICJ found Israel guilty of genocide, would you support that finding?
1: Well, you know, Crystal, genocide, I'm going to return to the genocide is what Hitler did to the Jewish people specifically, very clearly targeted the elimination of an entire people. That's genocide. Hamas is committed to the destruction of the Jewish people in Israel, shoving people into the sea. That is to me, the roots of genocide. And and but do I have great faith in the international courts right now on any of these circumstances? I do not, but it does not change my perspective that like I just said, anybody who commits crimes against humanity should be prosecuted and held accountable. period. and
0: if so we do, do not- you find do you find that their claims have merit? They uh, put in something like an eighty four page report that details conditions on the ground, including, as I've mentioned, the denial of, you know, the basic conditions yep. of life through the complete siege, the indiscriminate bombing. They also have six pages of comments from Israeli politicians and military leaders, including up to and including Benjamin Netanyahu. Do you find any of those claims to have merit? and would you uphold a finding of guilt were it to be issued and you were president
1: okay as i said earlier uh, if evidence indicates that benjamin netanyahu initiated uh, this knowing about the loss of indiscriminate or indiscriminate loss of life uh, that is one thing but it, are does is israel committed to genocide no they're not and any any contention uh, like that i think is really appalling because no uh, israel is not committed to eliminating the Palestinian people or Muslim people? No, they're not. Now Hamas is committed to eliminating Jewish people. That's true. I don't. I, I don't know how else to portray it. No, I don't think this is a genocide. I think it is a. I think it is a poorly executed plan. I think it is resulting in horrifying, indiscriminate loss of life that must be stopped, never to happen again. And those who've been perpetuating it should be held accountable based on the law. Period. Like we can said, move on. That we means can move Hamas, on. That means, that means Hamas in Israel and. I, all I'm looking, guys. All I'm looking for is this. I just want to make this case, you know. I, and it's—I know I don't look like someone whose community is really suffering too right now. I know I don't look like someone who, you know, needs any help or support or is facing any kind of threat whatsoever. You know, I just look like a white privileged man. I know that, but I would just ask that both of you and people watching have some empathy for a group of people right now around the world who have been suffering for generations who are scared out of their wits right now for their children too, and who have great empathy for Palestinian people like me. And I just wish progressives can unite around something much more important than which side you're on, which is the side of humanity. And I understand the appalling nature of this whole thing. I would just ask that you understand how the ignorance of how another people are suffering who look like me, that don't look like we need any help, is actually a really big issue. And I
2: would but just God, ask God, you to think
1: God,
0: about God, that. Suffering doesn't, justify atrocities.
2: Yeah. And let's be clear. Not North Gaza at, hey, whoa, North Crystal, Gaza has not, been wiped not, off the
1: map, Congressman. North Gaza is gone. The anti-Semitism that is resulting from this is really dangerous and really horrifying for people. And I can tell you don't totally understand that. I'm not asking to do anything else other than to listen to what I just said and understand that there are a lot of people suffering. And no, it's not the same thing. You know, no more than the Jews that were brutalized and killed and raped by Hamas fighters, any more than the indiscriminate loss of life in Gaza. They're both horrifying, and it has to end. But please, please understand—you know—the fear in other communities that don't maybe seem like it's existing, and that's how a lot of Jewish people are feeling right now. And I'm afraid, without a little bit of that empathy, you're going to see a flight of Jewish progressives from the Democratic Party. That's going to make solving these problems even more difficult. I'm just asking. I'm just asking for some. Let me empathy. interject. That's
2: all. Let me interject. My primary yeah. concern at the moment is what I view as an ongoing genocide in Gaza. Okay. So we have, I'm just going to give you the numbers here. This is from Euromed Monitor, the human rights group. We have 30,676 Palestinians who have been killed. 12,040 of them are children, 6,103 of them are women. Of the 30,676 Palestinians killed, 28,201 of them are civilians we have 58,960 people injured. There's been 105 journalists who've been killed. Many of them, there's tremendous evidence that they've been targeted on purpose. Of the 2.3 million residents of Gaza, 1.935 million of them are displaced. There are 67,946 homes that have been completely destroyed. We have 201 mosques that have been bombed, three churches that have been bombed, 169 healthcare facilities that have been bombed, 198 heritage sites that have been bombed. What we're looking at here, I think it's a genocide. I think South Africa is right. Clearly you disagree with that, but the crocodile tears I find a little insulting. This idea that we should care more about feelings of some people as... A whole group of people is getting wiped off the map. North Gaza is gone. It doesn't exist anymore. It's rubble. And Ben Kavir and Smotris have announced a plan of ethnic cleansing. Why should that not be the main focus and the main concern, especially when it's
1: my money and our weapons that are being used for it? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know what, you know, Kyle, first of all, accuse me of having crocodile tears. You know, come on. I mean, come on. Have you not heard me say a thousand times on this interview so far? But I have great empathy and I feel the same way about the loss of innocent human life. And I can't hear I, I've not heard you say one thing empathetic. I've not heard you say one thing empathetic towards a country and people that have been prosecuted, persecuted, oppressed and killed in mass for generations. The only reason my family is an American family, Kyle, is because they escaped pogroms in Europe. Israel is also trying to protect itself. You never talk about it. You know, Because I, I don't think they're trying to protect themselves.
2: I think they're trying to wipe uh, out Palestinians. That's what the evidence suggests.
1: Well, I think, okay, then look at I'm trying to be empathetic. You don't have empathy for the Jewish people, it appears, or for the Israeli state. And I understand that's- such a cheap trick. You're basically saying I'm am- an anti-Semite you're because I'm critical of what's happening in tears. Gaza. I'm not, Do you I think I'm an anti-Semite, Congressman? I didn't, Kyle, I did not use that term. What I'm saying is I'm empathizing- You're very clearly implying it. You're, you're saying I have crocodile tears. I'm trying to tell you that right now it is a disaster in the Middle East. Both people have been suffering for generations. And what I'm seeing in Gaza is appalling, period. It's disgusting. If I were president, I would handle this quite differently. I would not allow tens of thousands of people to be killed. And frankly, I would not have allowed Israelis to be suffering like they have for generations. And I know none of us were alive during the Holocaust. But my goodness, you have no empathy for what it is like to be a Jewish person. None. And I'm telling you I would be the first one on the front lines Trying
2: to Period. protect Jews during the Holocaust, and that's how I feel like I am right I now, I'm trying to protect the Palestinians have, during the atrocity I have, I have, I against them. That that's, that's my position,
1: all. Congressman, don't you talk about that history at all? Do you, think, I it's you I think it's understandable? Do you think I, it's I don't
0: under, live in 1940? <laughs> Do you think it's <laughs> I live understandable in to prioritize you, an percentage. ongoing genocide? Do you think it's understandable? Do you think it requires you to be an anti-Semite to say that the most important foreign policy issue in the world right now is the ongoing starvation and genocide of an entire people and planned ethnic cleansing?
1: It's not. No, the ethnic cleansing and the genocide was against Jewish people during the Holocaust in the 1940s. That is true. Israel is not committing a genocide trying to eliminate an entire people.
0: All right. They're let trying me let me ask you trying to
1: eliminate. They're trying to eliminate a terrorist organization that just killed twelve hundred people in the most brutal fashion. They're imaginable. very bad. At and I think it's they sickening. actually
0: have increased support for Hamas and they have massacred vastly more civilians than they have, even by their own estimates of Hamas fighters. But I want to ask one more question on this. Uh, you know, I think this all you take, up,
1: I have empathy for two types. I, I have empathy for both. People's, and it appears that right now all you want to talk about is empathy for one. And I understand that's your position. The one's getting bombed. One that's being
0: massacred <laughs> by the thousands on a daily basis. Okay. What about the last, thousand, que- what last about question? Last question. What
1: about the thousand Israelis that were brutally we attacked? Have, we, we have. We covered October seventh a thousand now, times. We covered it
0: yes. extensively. Congressman, we about it who once. is being killed right now? Whose government is complicit in those killings right now? Okay. Now, right I can't now, call, I can't call my local Hamas representative and tell him to cut it out. But I can talk to my member of Congress. I can talk to people who are running for president like you and the president of the United States who are sending our tax dollars to bomb babies. So the last question I have for you, and then we can move on potentially, is do you take Ben Gavir, Smotrich? And Netanyahu, at their word, That their goal, their end goal of this operation is to, quote, thin out the population of Gaza to push a, quote, voluntary migration, which, of course, is not voluntary when your house has been bombed and your children are being starved. Um, This was just in Haaretz, I believe, yesterday. Netanyahu considering scenario of surrender and deportation of Gaza residents. They're talking to countries as far afield as Congo to try to get them to accept the Palestinian refugees who are being pushed out of their homes. Do you accept their words that their end goal here is a complete ethnic cleansing of the Gaza Strip of Palestinians?
1: I I don't know what to make of their words. I will tell you this, Crystal. The three men you just referenced, I think, are bad people, period. I'm going to leave it at that, period. And they're a big part of the problem for Israel and Israel's security and Israel's future. And I hope Israelis replace them because it is the only democratic nation in the entire region. Thank goodness Israelis will have that chance to do so and hopefully soon, period, and they should be held accountable, as I said earlier, period.
2: So Biden tried to get Build Back Better through. He ended up only being able to get the Reduced Inflation Reduction Act through, uh, largely because of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. Uh, did Build Back Better go too far, or did it not go far enough? If that had come up for a vote, would you have supported that? What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, we had, we had, I was part of the Democratic leadership team trying to get that across the finish line, and um, I think there's a lot of good legislation that never made it to the floor. A uh, big part of that problem, by the way, Kyle, is that, you know, you need a president who sits down with both sides uh, at the takeoff so you can try to be there on the landing. Uh, unfortunately, that wasn't going to happen with Build Back Better. I think the Inflation Reduction Act that resulted is um, is a start. Uh, but no, I think there's a whole lot more work to do as it relates, as I said earlier, particularly in the area of health care for all, education for all and housing for all. Uh, That was not going to be achieved by Build Back Better. It was certainly not achieved by the Inflation Reduction Act. It has got to be achieved by Democrats working with Republicans on the singular objective to serve Americans better, because these are not political issues. uh, They're truths. Uh, And believe it or not, conservatives have uh, conservative voters have the same needs as um, as liberal voters. Uh, And that is to reduce costs and raise the foundations. That's my intention. Uh, Build Back Better uh, was never going to pass as long as we had mansion and cinema uh, doing their thing, and of course, cinema sold out to the um, hedge fund industry, as we well know.
0: Um, so, Congress, Congressman, moving forward in your campaign, I understand you're sort of staking a lot in New Hampshire. You know. Mm-hmm. What is your plan? Obviously, right now Joe Biden leads by a vast margin on both you and Marianne Williamson. In fact, I sure. think Marianne nationally leads you in the polls as well. So, sure. you know, what would be the signal to you? Do you need to achieve a certain level of support in New Hampshire, for example, to stay in the race? How are you thinking about those things?
1: Well, typically, an incumbent gets you know eighty some percent of the vote in a primary. Um, in this case, I think Biden, if he gets fifty percent, is going to be a miracle. I think he's going to look awfully weak. Uh, I think we're going to surprise. I'd love to generate 25, 30 percent of the vote. I think that would be quite remarkable. Uh, And I think Marianne Williamson deserves a lot of credit for her courage and conviction as well. Uh, We are being subject to the same uh, corruption. Uh, I know we're going to try to uh, share that with American voters. But I got to tell you, it's really hard when the president of the United States refuses to um, uh, pursue the most important element of democracy, which is debate. We do have a primary. There would be a primary if I was in it or wasn't, because Marianne Williamson is, and he should be debating us. I think New Hampshire will be the spark uh, that ultimately sets the course for this entire primary. I think Joe Biden, it'll demonstrate that he is very weak as a candidate and is not electable. I think that will be uh, shown in New Hampshire, and the polls are showing it. Intuition is showing it. The erosion of support amongst young people who now favor Trump over Biden, people under 30, the Hispanic community. Latinos are now favoring Trump over Biden, hemorrhaging support from black males in America. I mean, it's just appalling what we're facing. And I, like I said earlier, guys, I think we should have a full stage of Democrats debating, deliberating, making their case to American Democratic and independent voters about who is best positioned to beat Donald Trump and then look at the numbers next summer. That's what we should be doing. But of course, the system is designed to prevent that course. And that's what happens in a duopoly. And ultimately, we need competition, period.
2: So it seems like uh, the general consensus in Washington is that Social Security needs to be reformed, which strikes me as a euphemism for cut. Uh, If you were president, would you look to cut Social Security, keep it the same
1: or expand it? No, God, we need to, if anything, expand it. And here's my proposition. Uh, The trust fund that supports Social Security because of demographic shifts uh, is going to reduce benefits beginning in 2033 by about 25%, which is going to be tragic. Social Security is the most uh, successful anti poverty program in world history. So what do we do? Uh, we need to raise the contribution cap from $160,000 to $250,000. It's, it's right now it is regressive. Uh, so 250 will extend the program at least until the 2040s at the current level of benefits. But here's my other proposition, Kyle. Uh, I believe we need to create a a pool by which successful, financially successful Americans at their own discretion can contribute their social security if they don't need it into a pool that is redistributed to the lowest 10% socioeconomically uh, of retirees on social security. And I say this because I sat with two extraordinary elderly women in North Conway, New Hampshire, a few weeks ago. They were eating lunch uh, at a retirement facility that served free lunches. And they were telling me that the last three days of the month, they typically only eat cold cereal and milk at night because they don't have any money left for a warm meal. And it made me so heartbroken and furious uh, because I know that $100 a month more for each of them is the difference between dignity and despair. So there is a way to solve this. Never under my watch would I allow Social Security to end or be reduced. If anything, it needs to be expanded. I also favor something in the beginning of life. Uh, The notion of affording every single baby born in America uh, an investment account. And some propose $500, some in the thousands. The point being, every young American child I'd like to see start their lives with a baby bond notion that will grow over time, that can't be tapped until they're older, uh, inject into our curricula, uh, the management, financial management classes. So young people in every zip code in the country learn how to manage money. They see their own nest egg grow. They can contribute to it over their lifetimes so that we start with a higher foundation and we end with a higher foundation in America. Uh, that's my proposition on both. And I think if we start doing that, we're going to see the foundation in the middle raised for everybody and equal opportunity for all will finally exist in America. And we've got to do it by working together. Democrats alone cannot get this done. We've got to make the case in a different way.
2: So what's your uh, strategy to deal with uh, a rogue Congress and an obstructionist Congress? When you talk about policies that are supported by a vast majority of the American people, like $15 minimum wage or paid family leave, for example, it seems to always like hit a brick wall because like every Republican opposes it and then you have some Democrats who oppose yeah. it as well. What would be your strategy as president to try to find a path, find a way to get mm-hmm. through really popular uh, proposals?
1: I know this sounds kind of trite, but at the end of the day, uh, Congress is a very human institution. And for someone who comes from the private sector like I have, you know, I look at this differently than people who've only come up through a political system, which is te- typically predicated on fighting each other, fighting nonstop, winning the next election. I'm a problem solver. That's my nature. I like working with others. And in the case, let's take healthcare care as, as a perfect example. Conservatives want to save dollars, tax dollars. Uh, but they also want to make sure everybody has uh, uh, health care if they if they can. Progressives, of course, we're focused on ensuring everybody has health care, a little less focused sometimes on the cost of it. Right now, we pay double any country in the world and we allow pharmaceutical companies to simply take advantage of Americans. We subsidize the entire world. So the ironic part about this with 26 million Americans with no insurance, 90 million uninsured paying double the rate of any com- um, state, in the uh, I'm sorry, country in the world. We could save trillions of dollars over decades if we insured a health um, insurance policy for everybody in this country. That is not the government in the care, the provision of care, but just the coverage. So I will work with conservatives whose constituents are suffering just as much as Democrats, not able to access care, going bankrupt. 66% of bankruptcies in America right now are because of medical debt. Most families are an illness away from bankruptcy. Tens of thousands of dollars in medical debt, families all around the country, it's appalling. So the way to do this is let's set the objective. How do we reduce costs? And how do we ensure everybody is covered? I guarantee you, we will come up with a plan to extend benefits to everybody and reduce costs for Americans. Housing, believe it or not, conservatives want to see more production of housing. It's regul- It's regulations and it's zoning issues that prevent a lot more housing production that we need right now to house Americans. That can be solved. Education, whether it's trade schools, apprenticeships, college, whatever it might be, that is one of the great American promises. It wasn't that long ago when only 15% of American kids went to high school. And finally our country woke up and said, boy, we should make sure that kids go to high school to compete in the new economy. Well, most kids should go to school, to higher education Because the 21st century economy and 22nd century economy are going to require very different skills. So I think there's a way to make the conservative proposition that we should ensure that those who qualify and aspire to higher education should be able to do so without breaking the bank. And when the 15 largest uh, uh, institutions of higher education in the country have aggregated endowments of $326 billion, Harvard over $50 billion, I think that is a way to start. I think we should uh, impose an excise tax on the largest uh, university endowments in the country to ensure that every American, no matter their zip code, no matter their politics, can pursue higher education at no burdensome cost to their families, period. And I think conservatives, when approached appropriately, will help us get there, believe it or not.
2: So, my final question for you is just something I'm interested in. Has Jenk Uger been invited to the debate between you and Marianne? And if not, why not? And what's your take on the legality of his campaign?
1: Yeah, so first of all, he's been great. Uh, he and Marianne Marianne and I have been in touch. Uh, we did a a young Turks uh, post GOP debate uh, kind of uh, our own debate, which I thought was really interesting and and um, provocative. Uh, I don't know if he was invited. Uh, this was not something coordinated. We were we were invited. I, I, I can't, op- I'm not an attorney. I can't opine on the legality of this case. I mean, it's fairly clear that uh, only those who are born in the United States can run for president. Um, but I think debate is good. And uh, the more of it, the better for all of us. I'm more disappointed that Joe Biden uh, is not participating, has said that he won't even do a single debate. He may not even debate in a general election if he's the nominee. Uh, So I don't have an answer to your question directly, Kyle, but generally speaking, I'd like to see more people on the debate stage, not fewer. And the fact that Democrats, here's another great example of the idiocy. We have literally handed hundreds of hours of primetime TV to the GOP. Every single GOP candidate has had a town hall. They've had debates almost every few weeks, nonstop coverage. They're making their case and Democrats are not even inspiring a single debate that would attract attention, generate some energy, at least introduce candidates to the country and maybe move the needle a little bit. We're completely handing the keys to the GOP once again because it is such an unbelievably misguided strategy. We should be debating. And I think that would actually energize a base of voters right now who are so apathetic and so pissed off and so tired of this nonsense. So that's part of what we're trying to do and I'm glad Marianne and I will be on stage.
2: All right. Well, Congressman, uh, thank you very much for joining us. I know it got heated, but I respect the fact that you come here to engage, and you're willing to sit on the hot seat, knowing that Crystal and I are not exactly <laughs> be easy interviewers. <laughs> and and uh, we respect you taking your time and coming here. We appreciate it.
1: If I could just say thank you, guys. Hey, I, you know, we need to have these conversations. This is hard for me to talk about the state of Israel that I love, uh, that I care deeply about because of why it exists. And I respect both of you and everybody who is deeply dismayed and disgusted about the loss of life in Gaza. I share that with you. I just want everybody to know that, particularly you two, uh, I am empathetic by nature. I'm horrified by the loss of life. And I want to invest in peace both here and around the world. Uh, To do so, we've got to stop fighting each other and start working together. And I'm educated every time I visit with you. And I just want to say
0: thank you. Thank you, Congressman. We appreciate it very much.
1: And
2: good luck with your campaign.
1: Thank you so much. Be well.
0: You too.
2: All right, so that was Dean Phillips. Uh, very heated interview, very passionate interview. I definitely respect the fact that he's willing to come into the lion's den. Um, honestly, I didn't think it would get that heated I when we sat down. Yeah, I wasn't I expecting care. it to get that heated. Yeah. But, you know, you would... Go I've ahead. already,
0: like, had it out with him on Israel. And he, at this, like, the surface-level position... For him on Israel now at this point, it's like, it's like pretty good, you know? And I like what he talks about when he says, impose a peace. That's like actually some language that you've been using. i yeah, like, we like, can't trust yeah, the Like, they're no. not going to do it on their own. Mm-hmm. We just have to come in and be like, this is what we're doing and we're going to enforce it. And you're going to fucking get on board. Right. It's actually like that part, mm-hmm. but it's clear when you push a little bit.
2: Passive language versus active language. Yeah. I know. I, I, know, mean, I know.
0: It's like very clear and very visceral and very morally clear with regard to the hamas atrocities on october 7th which i also feel but the minute you're like well what about the siege and the white phosphorus and the bombing hospitals well, and if Indus, there are things well, happening doing then it, yeah then maybe and netanyahu's bad but israel no i so anyway yeah and then there was um there's videos all
2: over the place too that was the one where he was like i haven't seen like Really? I seen the Are your eyes like, closed? <laughs> I see him every fucking day. I can send you some Watch right one now. <laughs> of my segments covering it. One of my segments covering Israel, and you'll be like, "Holy shit!"
0: Yeah. Um. Anyway, I, as you said, I I appreciate because he knew it was possible that it would get right. Intense. You had it
2: out with him before, so and he, he was still willing to come back. He
0: was still willing to come back. I respect that, and it's unusual, and so I do appreciate that. I also appreciate. You know, putting Israel aside, some of the language about how he feels like he enabled a corrupt system and was sort of blind to the failures there. And I think it's important to have voices that were inside the system, that are inside the system saying, this is disgusting. You know, this is outrageous. This is a a betrayal of the American people. And so for him to say those things and to have acknowledged that as he's gotten out of that bubble... And talk to people, but he has shifted his positions on things like Medicare for all and tuition free college and on housing. Um, you know, I, I appreciate that as well. And I think that's important to hear.
2: Yeah. Definitely. I don't think I have much more to add, but
0: I might have a lot more to add. But I'm just gonna keep it in because <laughs> we said enough. <laughs> yeah, it's very clear.
2: Well, I had fun, and yeah, I think people have fun watching it. So, anyway, yeah. guys, uh, if you like this and you want to see more of it, you know what to do. <laughs> uh, go to Substack, the link below. If you sign up for five dollars a month, you get the video of every interview and you get it a day, a day early. You can also sign up for free on Substack also and get the audio podcast a day later, usually on Saturdays. And remember, we've never talked to any advertisers ever. Uh, Uh, This is all funded through you guys, and so you make everything run. We deeply, deeply appreciate it. Please consider supporting if you're not, and that's all I got for you guys, man. We love you, and we'll talk to you next week.